in C.S. Lewis's book, The, Ch- the Silver Chair, a young girl named Jill has an encounter with a lion. And she, on seeing this lion, runs into the forest in terror. And she runs as hard and as far and as fast as she possibly can until she believes she is actually going to die of thirst. But then she listens and she hears the sound of a brook that is running nearby. And she begins to move toward the sound only to come face to face again with the lion sitting on the grass at the bank of the river. And the lion speaks to Jill and says, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, Jill asked. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. Well, then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? That's the most important question in the universe. It's the most important question you will ever answer. And it's the question that confronts the people that Jesus encounters during his ministry on the earth in the, in the gospel accounts. And it's the question that comes to you and I to answer as well. Because when you truly hear Jesus' word, when you see him for who he actually is, when you come face to face with the lion who fixes his eyes on you and says, there is no other stream, you must decide who he is and how you will respond to him. In the events that are narrated in this text, we learn important truths about who Jesus is and some important truths about how we must respond to him. Two points this morning. The first, Jesus divides, so we must follow him. And second, Jesus satisfies, so we must come to him and drink. First, Jesus divides, so we must follow him. Just by way of review, we've been in John chapter 7 for a couple of weeks now, and John 7 is a significant escalation point in the burgeoning conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And at this point in the narrative of John's gospel, Jesus' ministry is 
is scuffling by earthly standards. Just a short time ago, Jesus had tens of thousands of followers, tens of thousands of people who were lined up to hear his teaching. And that number has dwindled now down to just a handful of people. If this were a church, it would be a church on life support. The only people showing up on Sunday morning would be the pastor and his family. Because you can always count on your family to support you in your ministry, right? Well, apparently not. Because earlier in this chapter, we see that even Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. They really liked hanging out with Jesus when that meant big crowds and big excitement. And they're longing for those halcyon days to come back. And so they come up with this idea. They say to Jesus, listen, it's time for the Feast of Booths. It's time to go up to Jerusalem. Let's go. Go on up to the feast, Jesus, and do your thing. Turn some, turn some water into wine. Manifest some heavenly bread. Heal a few sick people, and we're going we're gonna to revamp your profile. We're going to get this, this whole thing rolling again. And Jesus has no interest in that. Jesus refuses to go to the feast with his brothers. He allows them to go up at the beginning of the week, and he goes up later in secret. And Jesus begins to move around Jerusalem and moving around the temple, and he begins to teach in the temple. He reiterates statements that he has made about himself, that his teaching is from God, and that he speaks with the very authority of God. That's what we saw last week in the verses that precede these. And it's this teaching in the temple on this occasion that causes the tensions between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, to finally boil over. Because it's here that the Sanhedrin finally decide they've had just about enough of this Galilean peasant carpenter troublemaker. And they issue a formal order to find and arrest Jesus to bring him to trial and to kill him in verse 32. So for the rest of the week-long celebration, Jesus seems to be keeping somewhat of a low profile until the last day of the feast. A moment comes when Jesus, the fugitive... Jesus, the insurrectionist. Jesus, the rabbi who used to be somebody. Cannot keep a low profile anymore. He cannot remain hidden. He is going to cry out and make an incredible statement about himself. And we're going to consider that statement in just a moment, but I I just want to put a pin in that for a second. And for us just to, to, to look briefly at the division that Jesus is causing by his words, and by his ministry. We see this happening in the verses that we covered in the last couple of weeks, and we see it in these verses as well. The crowds are responding to Jesus, and they don't know what to make of him. Some people say, this could be the prophet, the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prophet who's going to come like Moses that was promised. Some people say, this, this might be the Christ, this could be the, the anointed one that the prophets pointed to. Still others want to see him arrested. They think he's a troublemaker and a rabble-rouser. People have various and sundry ideas about him, but you see very few people actually believing him and following him and worshiping him for who he is. We see this division, this controversy being, being stirred up in the officers who were sent to arrest him. The officers have a chance to arrest Jesus, and they don't take it. They have a chance to fulfill the commission they've been given by the Sanhedrin and to arrest Jesus, and they don't do it. We need to understand these these officials who were sent to arrest Jesus, they're not Roman soldiers. 
If they're sent by the Sanhedrin, that means these would be Levites who would be charged with serving as the temple guards but would also assist in the worship of the people. So they would have been very familiar with the sacrificial system. They would have known the law and they would have known the prophets and they would have heard something that sounds familiar to them in the things that Jesus is saying. Look at what they say. The Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? Why haven't you done the thing we sent you to do? Because no one ever spoke like this man. They're not believing in Jesus, but these men speak better than they know. Then we see the Pharisees. The Pharisees are in a full lather at this point. They are incensed. You see the unmitigated arrogance and pride of these men in the way that they respond. They say, give me a break, you crowds who are confused. None of us believe in him. If some of the crowds believe in him, they don't know the law. Let them be accursed. Literally, these religious leaders are saying, to hell with the crowds. They think no one important, nobody, who's any, who, nobody who knows anything believes in this Jesus. Ever heard something like that? No one with half a brain can believe that the Bible is authoritative or without errors. That's what the Pharisees were saying. Nicodemus speaks up as a member of the Sanhedrin, and he essentially reminds them of Robert's rules of order. <laughs> he says, doesn't our law say that we have to give a man a hearing before we judge him and put him to death? He tries to check the murderous intent of the Sanhedrin with a point of order, and he's rebuked and shouted down. And verse 43 provides us with a very tidy summary statement of what is happening as a result of Jesus' ministry in this account. It says, so there was a division among the people over him. And this is where the narrative ends with utter confusion. People don't know what to do with Jesus, but everyone seems to be responding very viscerally to this man and to his teaching. And why is that? Why is Jesus causing such a commotion? Because the coming of Jesus brings two kingdoms into conflict with one another. It brings the kingdom of Jesus into conflict with the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world exists to exalt self. It seeks to overthrow God's authority and to reduce Him, to make Him into a pawn that exists only to help us advance our purposes and our own self-fulfillment. That's what the kingdom of self does. It's what it always does. This takes many different forms, but at the root of it, the kingdom of this world is just fine and dandy with Jesus so long as he exists to give me what I really want for myself. That's why all of these people are reacting so strongly to him. Jesus' brothers are reacting this way because they're fine with celebrity Jesus who draws a crowd and they get to be popular and exciting by association. They're fine with that, but they have no time for the Jesus who only does the will of his Father and is here to do more than just draw a crowd to himself. The crowds love the bread and fish producing Jesus, but they have no interest in the Jesus who demands worship and obedience, the Jesus who claims God's authority as his own authority. The rulers and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they're fine and dandy with Jesus as long as he knows his place, as long as he's willing to bow down and kiss the ring. Jesus, you're just fine. But the minute Jesus starts referring to himself as the fulfillment of the law, 
As soon as he starts toppling their understandings of what God's Word actually teaches, that's not just a threat to their law. It's a threat to their kingdom. It's a threat to their entire world. The kingdom of Jesus comes in conflict with the kingdom of this world. And division results. Because Jesus doesn't come to find His own little niche in your life. He comes to wreck your life so that your life can be added to His. Jesus' kingdom graciously does away with your false notions of what flourishing looks like so that He can replace them and lead you into real flourishing of life with Him. But the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of self, it doesn't topple easily, does it? These two kingdoms, their purposes are diametrically opposed to one another. And by the time this conflict between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world runs its course in the gospel accounts, we know that Jesus is being executed on a Roman cross, and pretty much everyone who saw it happen thought he got what he deserved. Jesus divides. And the division that took place on that day 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, it is just as real today. Those two kingdoms are still in conflict. And if we follow Jesus, if we pledge our allegiance to His kingdom and seek to walk in obedience and faithfulness to Him, we will glorify Him. We will experience His blessings in the spiritual realm, but we'll get something else too. We'll experience opposition in the earthly realm. We will experience opposition. The place where this conflict of kingdoms is playing out most clearly in our day is in the realm of sexual ethics and gender. The kingdom of this world has a very well-articulated message. That message is the highest good is to be true to yourself, to be your best authentic self, whatever that means for you. So if that means you embrace a non-traditional sexual ethic, then go for it. If that means your gender identity needs to be changed to match what you feel, then of course, go ahead. Because the highest good is, is you being able to do what you want. You have a right to be happy no matter what. But the kingdom of Jesus says something very different. The kingdom of Jesus says that God has a good design for your masculinity and for your femininity. He has a good design for your sexual ethics and for your sexual identity that goes beyond your feelings and what you desire. It's rooted in a glorious reality that's ordained by God. The kingdom of Jesus says your happiness is not found in being your best authentic self. Happiness is found in entrusting yourself to God's design for you. Even if that means saying no to your desires. When you follow Jesus in that, when we articulate a historical, biblical, traditional view of marriage as one man and one woman, when we say that God's vision for human flourishing is, is better than what we can come up with for ourselves, when we stand for the unborn and we plead with women with tears in our eyes that there is a higher allegiance than what you may desire, 
Make no mistake, we will experience opposition. We will be called bigots and fools. However gentle and reasonable we may be in how we articulate those views. But Jesus divides. And we must be willing to be fools in the here and now for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus and his kingdom. And make no mistake, eternity will vindicate God's people and God's purposes. If you are on the Lord's side, you know that you will be on the right side of history. We must be willing to follow Jesus into the division that he will bring by his word. And if that seems like a burden that's too great to bear, you're saying, I don't know how I can do that. Well, I have some good news for you. Our second point is Jesus satisfies, so we must come to him and drink. To help us consider Jesus' words that he says when he stands up, let me say a couple things about the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths was one of several great feasts that were appointed in the Old Testament. You can read more about that in Leviticus 23. And of all the feast celebrations, this was the most exciting, the most joyful. It's the one where God's people would celebrate God's faithfulness during the wilderness wanderings in the Exodus, where God carried his people until they entered the promised land. They remembered the two great events from the wilderness wanderings, God providing manna from heaven and God providing water from the rock. And at this festival, they would uh, journey from all over the region to Jerusalem, and they would live for a week in temporary dwellings, tents or booths, to commemorate their 40 years of wandering in temporary dwellings in the wilderness. And this feast was marked by joy and celebration, and it all culminated on the last day of the feast that was marked by this water-pouring ritual. And the ritual is, is not something that's ordained in the New Testament, but by the time Jesus is experiencing this. It had been around for about 200 years. And what would happen in this water-pouring ceremony is that the priest would, would journey from the temple to the pool of Siloam, and he would carry with him a golden flagon, a big, a big pitcher. And he would take the pitcher to the pool, and he would dip it in the water, and he would draw forth a, a giant portion of water, and he would carry it back to the temple. And as he's carrying it, there's a massive procession there, celebrating and singing and shouting, playing instruments and dancing. It was a joyful time. And as the, as the priests entered the water gate to head toward the altar, there would be three blasts that would sound from the trumpet. And as he comes to the altar, thousands upon thousands of pilgrims in festival assembly would begin to chant the words of Isaiah chapter 12, let us with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the priest would circle the altar seven times and then he would step up to it and he would pour the water on the altar as a symbol of God's provision. It was a joyful time remembering God's past provision, trusting in his future provision. They called this celebration the season of our gladness. And one rabbi said, he who has never seen the ritual of the drawing of the water has never in their life witnessed joy. And there was a moment in this water-pouring ritual where the priest would stop and he would raise his hand and the entire congregation would immediately go from loud celebration 
to silence. And it seems from the way that John constructs his narrative, it is at that moment, this moment of silence that commemorates God's provision of water in the desert, that a voice comes shattering the silence as Jesus shouts. Is anybody thirsty? Sinclair Ferguson says that if you don't have a Jesus who shouts, you don't have the Jesus of the New Testament. Because there are some announcements that are too good to be whispered. There are some invitations that you can't say under your breath. You have to proclaim it from the highest place. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Suddenly, keeping a low profile is less important to Jesus. As he watches this ritual unfold, he sees this pattern in God's people's worship that ultimately points to him, and he cannot keep silent any longer. He says, come to me, come to me and drink. Now, who exactly is Jesus inviting? To whom is he offering life? Anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. What a beautiful word that is. Anyone, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't specify the type of thirst you need to have in order to come to him. He doesn't specify what the object of your thirst needs to be. He doesn't say, if anyone thirsts for God, let him come to me. He says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. What do you long for? What are you thirsting for today? That desire, in its, in its purest, most uncorrupted form, has at its root a desire for Jesus Christ. Do you know that? He is what's behind all of our thirsts. There's a desire that only he can satisfy. Augustine, who lived in the 5th century, prayed, Oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Behind all of our thirsts is ultimately a desire for Jesus. G.K. Chesterton once said that when a young man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's not looking for sex. He's looking for God. We could say on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that when a woman knocks on the door of an abortion clinic, she's not looking for an abortion. She's looking for God. She's looking for someone to deliver her. For someone who can make her safe. What are you thirsting for today? What is it that you really want? Some people go from relationship to relationship because what they really thirst for is to be known and loved. That thirst points to what you were made for, a relationship with Jesus. No one knows the real you like Jesus does. And despite everything he knows about you, 
His is a love that will not let you go. It will not disappoint you. It will not fail to deliver on its promises. Some people thirst for purity, to be clean because of the wrongs that they've committed. You need the purity that only Jesus can give. He is the only one who is able to deal with the guilt of your sin and cleanse the scarlet out of your garments and wash them white as snow. Some people thirst for safety because they've been violated and been betrayed by people that they trusted. Jesus is the lion who devours kings and emperors, cities and realms. And he is able to make you eternally secure. Some people thirst for significance and they seek it in their work and in their wardrobe and in their physique and in the things that they can accumulate for themselves because they just feel inadequate all the time, like they'll never be enough. And if I can just get one more thing. Well, Jesus is the God of the universe, the creator of everything that exists, and he knows you, and he delights in you, and he gives you all the significance you could ever need. And the invitation that Jesus sets before us in this text is to stop drinking from other wells. Stop drinking from those broken cisterns that cannot hold water that we heard about in our liturgy this morning. Stop drinking from the wells of pornography and adultery, of gossip and covetousness, of pride and envy, of people-pleasing and unforgiveness. Stop drinking out of the, the seemingly the seemingly mundane and harmless wells of mindless distraction, your iPhone, your television, Facebook, and and Twitter. When you experience that thirst, come and come and drink from me. Can we all just agree to try this this week? Can we try this? When we feel those pangs inside of us that tell us of our soul's thirst, whether it's pangs of boredom or fear or anxiety, or bitterness, instead of opening the refrigerator or pulling out the phone or indulging in the flesh, instead take a moment and drink deeply from the water that Jesus provides. Instead of spending those two minutes while you're waiting for the person who's supposed to meet you for coffee scrolling through your phone, take a minute and cast your cares on Jesus. Meditate on the fact that He's forgiven you. The fact that He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and that He delights in you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we come and drink? Verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What Scripture is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. He's talking about this this vivid, rich river imagery in the Old Testament. The river in the Old Testament is a picture of the divine promise of, of overflowing human flourishing, human fullness, healing, wholeness, endless rivers of restoration and refreshment that comes from God for weary souls. We see it in the creation of the world. In the Garden of Eden, there was a river that flowed And it flowed into the four rivers that watered that whole region. 
In Exodus 17, the people are grumbling against God in the desert. There's no water. They fear they're going to die. Moses strikes the rock with his staff, and water flows out to quench the thirst of thousands of Israelites. In Psalm 46, the psalmist calls out to God in his day of trouble. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. And there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And in Ezekiel chapter 47, God's people are in exile in Babylon. In the midst of God's judgment for their rebellion, Ezekiel is given a vision of the temple back home in Jerusalem. And what does he see? There is a river flowing down from the threshold of the temple into the barren, dead land of Jerusalem. And everywhere it goes, it brings life to dead places. It flows into the Dead Sea, and the sea comes alive. Do you see what these rivers of water represent to his weary, filthy, thirsty people. Jesus gives an endless supply of water to refresh us and to cleanse us and to flow through us to others. When we come to him, we become like him. He gives us this water and then he gives that water through us to others. This vision of the river finds its fulfillment ultimately in the very last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation 22, John sees this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." This life-giving water is at the center of the new Jerusalem. It's flowing from the throne where Jesus rules, and it's healing the nations. But not everyone is experiencing this river in the new city. Not everyone is on the inside of the city walls. We read in verse 15, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So the unrighteous people are the ones on the outside of the wall. So who's inside the wall? We expect it to say, the righteous people are on the inside. But that's not what it says. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, Come and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The people who experience the fullness of this kingdom, who drink from the rivers of life in the new Jerusalem, are not the people who are righteous. It's the people who know how desperately they need it. It's the people who are thirsty for the water that comes from Jesus. You don't need any money. You don't need any merit. You don't need any works of your own to present to God to be welcomed in this new city. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. All you need is to know the dryness the barrenness, 
the weariness of your own soul. Come to Him. Believe in Him and receive this living water. Verse 39 says, Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What does that mean? The Spirit had not yet been given. We see the Holy Spirit active and working in the Old Testament, don't we? We see Him anointing the prophets and the priests and the kings. We see Him changing hearts and saving people. So what does John mean? Well, he means that in the Old Testament, the anointing and the empowering of the Holy Spirit was a limited gift that only went to a few select individuals. Moses had it. Elijah had it. Samson had it. A few others. But there's a prophecy that comes in the book of Joel that one day the Spirit will one day be poured out on all flesh. That one day every member of the covenant community would be empowered and indwelled by the Spirit to participate fully in all the fullness of kingdom life. And if you are in Christ today, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. You are empowered by the Spirit, by God, to be used for His purposes. And those waters are flowing out of you by the Spirit today. But that outpouring in the Old Testament was a future hope that wasn't going to be realized until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit descended on the church. So while Jesus is alive, carrying out His ministry, that promise has not yet been fulfilled. Before the Spirit could come, Jesus had to complete His mission. Before we could gain access to these fountains, these rivers of living water inside of us, Jesus had something He had to do. He had to go to the cross to die in the place of sinners. He had to go into the grave. He had to rise on the third day. He had to appear to more than 500 people. Then he had to ascend into heaven and to enter into his glory to be glorified. The Messiah had to return to his Father so that together they could send the Holy Spirit to come to his people and to apply the finished work of the Son to you and me so that we might receive that living water. At this table, we remember that Jesus divided the people so that they might put him to death, so that we might receive the promised spirit, so that these rivers of living water could flow in and through and out of us, so that we could be satisfied eternally in Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come to align his kingdom with yours. He came to rescue you from your kingdom and to add you into his. And here's the thing. Kingdom life with Jesus will not always be easy. It won't. But it is good. And there is no other stream. And he sets the invitation before us again today. Is anybody thirsty? Let him come to me and drink.